You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey there, it's Max. We're back with the next interview in our series this week with this year's George Polk Award winners. And the Polk Awards, I should say, They honor the best and most important journalism of the year, and there were very few pieces that I read in 2021 that stuck with me quite in the same way that the one we're talking about today did. It's by Sarah Stillman of The New Yorker, and I first interviewed Sarah for Long Form way back in 2013. It's a little bit terrifying that we've been doing the show for that long, but Sarah, since then, has continued to do this absolutely groundbreaking and, I would argue, unique brand of journalism that she does. She finds these human stories that are embedded in massive societal issues, issues that are so big, they're hard to wrap your head around. And she has this way of making those huge, seemingly intractable problems feel personal. That's exactly what she did in the article we're talking about today. It's called The Migrant Workers Who Follow Climate Disasters. And it's about this billion-dollar industry that has emerged to clean up after fires and floods and hurricanes and tornadoes, and the way that this new, huge industry exploits its workers. Sarah followed several of them for more than a year, and she also got some of the companies to go on the record with her in a way that felt quite rare. It's an incredible piece of journalism. It's meticulously reported. It's full of emotion. And it was just fascinating to talk to Sarah about how she pulled it off. So here's my conversation with Sarah Stillman about her Polk Award-winning article for The New Yorker. And stay tuned the rest of the week. We got a few more of these coming up. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Max. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks so much for doing this. And congratulations on your Polk Award. Thank you. Congrats on everything Pineapple has become. Well, yeah, you know. Making lots of podcasts, you are writing lots of articles, but we are here to talk about one of them, which is this piece you wrote about migrant workers who follow climate disasters. And that is a very short way to sum it up, but I wonder if you could give me a slightly expanded version of what the article was about and what you were trying to do with it. Absolutely. So... You know, the origin of this piece really goes back to literally my first New Yorker piece ever. Way back when, I guess it was 2010 or 11, I was reporting on human trafficking on U.S. military bases in Iraq and Afghanistan. That may sound really random, but I'll break it down for you. So basically, um, I was over in, in Iraq and looking at the many, many logistics workers who had been recruited to do these really hard jobs on U.S. military bases. And they were people coming from India, Sierra Leone, Sri Lanka to do you know, the cleaning of the latrines and the cooking of the food for U.S. soldiers on U.S. bases. And often they'd been promised these total lies about these great jobs in Dubai where they'd be making tons of U.S. dollars and instead they were brought to a war zone. 
And when I went over there and started looking into the many layers of subcontracting involved in that trafficking, what I found is that some of the companies that were responsible for that in Iraq and Afghanistan actually also saw an opportunity after Hurricane Katrina in the rebuilding of the Gulf Coast. And so companies like KBR were not only involved in subcontracting that defrauded workers to come work on U.S. military bases, but they were also recruiting guest workers from India and other places to come work um, rebuilding places like New Orleans after, uh, after the hurricane there. And so in that process, I got to know about this really fledgling industry of workers who were suddenly coming to the U.S. to help rebuild after hurricanes. And at that point, they didn't really identify as like storm recovery workers. And so part of what this piece was really trying to do is follow the emergence of this new industry of workers who might have once identified as like construction workers who, um, you know, helped rebuild after a given storm in their local area. But then what happened is with climate change, because extreme weather events became more and more and more common, these workers realized that they developed a specialized set of skills after Katrina, and then they went on to the next storm after that in Baton Rouge, and then they went on to the next storm after that in Texas after Hurricane Harvey, and then they went on to Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Michael, and they realized there was this whole new line of work to become a kind of migrant worker doing recovery work after storms or after fires or after floods. And how did you go about embedding yourself in that world? Because part of what's so clear in the article, which is true in the military bases one as well, is it's a part of a giant apparatus that many of us, or I'll just speak for myself, that I don't see. And so I wonder how you went about trying to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, I had this amazing journalism professor um, back in the day, Bruce Shapiro, and he had this idea of like the act two story. So there's so many different stories where at that initial moment of the crisis, like all kinds of news media rush in and they tell the kind of front page story of, you know, here was this hurricane that decimated this town or this tornado or this wildfire. And then like most of us move on, you know, as readers and as reporters. And so he was all about like training us to think about, you know, where is the act two story? And you know, in the context of climate crisis and extreme weather events, it turns out the Act 2 story lasts for many months, if not years, in rebuilding some of these places. And so what's fascinating is I feel like I stumbled into this whole complex subculture of workers who, if you go to almost any town after a major hurricane and you go to the Home Depot parking lot, you will tend to find, you know, upwards of 100 workers who are literally living out of their cars, sleeping in their cars, helping to rebuild the community. And that's one entry point, right, is that there's a day laborer community that um, people have been figuring out how to organize for years, but that's now on the move following these different storms. And so I just went along with some of the incredible organizers who are doing the work of trying to reach out to those storm resilience workers. So I found out about this amazing group, Resilience Force, um, and it's led by this guy, Socket Sony. And he's made it basically his life's calling to just zoom in anytime there is a major extreme weather event. And he goes to the local Home Depot. He's built deep relationships with a lot of the workers who've worked different storms over the years. And so, you know, one thing I've always learned as a reporter is like you figure out who is the trusted gatekeeper in a given community and you follow along with them if you can. And that's a way to kind of accelerate intimacy. And in this case, it was the organizers of Resilience Force who had really built some pretty deep relationships with workers across the years. How long did you work on this project for? I mean, really, I was following the workers across the arc of more than a year. 
how do you make that decision about where you're going to invest your own time? Because one of the things that reading through your archive stories makes so clear is that there are lots of versions of huge systemic problems that many people don't see and only a few people are fighting very hard to change. So how did you decide to invest in this one in this way? Yeah, I think I'm all about the Venn diagram <laughs> where like the individual meaningful stories of things people are up against intersect with the big systemic injustice issues of our day. And it feels like climate is clearly an enormous domain where it in where it's been hard in some ways to tell substantive stories of where actual human beings are navigating and pushing back against some of these huge cultural forces. And so this felt like it brought all the circles together in the Venn diagram. We've got like the realities of climate change. We've got the realities of how subcontracting is completely screwed over workers and the accountability that they deserve in the workforce. And this issue of wage theft, which I had always wanted to write about because it's a really good example of a huge crisis that's hard to narrate because in its minutia, similar to other things I've written about like civil forfeiture, like any one individual losing 50 bucks because police seized it from them unjustly or because, you know, in this case, um, employers were cheating them, it can sound like it's not a big deal. But when you add it up, it's like one of the truly biggest crimes happening in American society, like $50 billion worth of crime. So I'm interested in those stories that can seem hard to narrate in the individual puzzle pieces. But when you put them together, you have something much larger than the sum of its parts. And also helping us name a language for what's happening. Because I think what intrigued me about this particular challenge is that we don't really have a name for this workforce. And Resilience Force is trying to create a name. They're calling them Resilience Workers. But unlike other things, you can you can Google, you can put it in a legal database. There, We don't even have a language for talking about this as a profession. And even the people working the profession are only beginning to understand that they have a distinct identity. They used to think of themselves as you know construction workers or asbestos mitigation workers or women who clean hotels after storms. But now they're starting to realize they do have that identity. And I think journalism can be part of shaping our language for talking about a crisis. Yeah, I mean, this situation is presenting all of these new things that we don't totally have names for, which is like also the companies that are employing these people are suddenly like billion-dollar entities. There's a giant boom in restoration companies, and it's like an entirely new industry and one that's pretty unregulated. And also, you don't know where the next one's coming. You just know the next one's coming. Right. And they know now with climate change, that is a sure bet. Because back in the day, like it wasn't necessarily going to be profitable to try to expand anywhere in the country to chase any storm. But now that we can pretty reliably know, even if you're someone who is a climate change denier, it's pretty hard to deny that we had, you know, more extreme weather events on record than ever before in 2020. And that these companies have shifted as a consequence, including one thing I was really interested in is like private equity had moved into this space. And that's always a sign, like something something real is happening, right? So we've got these companies that started out as like, in some cases, they were like paint stores who, you know, rebuilt after little minor fires in the neighborhood. And then they became regional. And then they realized that there was a ton of money chasing federal contracts. So they started getting groups of vans together and they would travel to wherever the storm was. And then they started hiring labor brokers. And that's where it became so similar to what we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan, so similar to the profiteering in the military industrial complexes that we saw the same subcontracting chains to realize the money that's available in, in the federal funds and in the private insurance industries. Now they're all chasing this. And they're multi-billion dollar companies with very little visibility. Did it freak them out to have you on the story? (laughs) 
Well, I think it did freak out one of the companies when I was there because it just so happened I showed up in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and one of the very first days we were there, we went to the Home Depot parking lot, and suddenly this huge protest broke out of workers who had been denied their wages by this major uh, company. And so, you know, I think they were in the midst of the crackdown on that. And then when they realized a reporter was there, like they threatened to call the police on me and like they it just like got really preposterous. Um, and then, you know, to their credit, that the head of that company, Mark Davis, he talked and he, he had the head of the prime contractor. So he's he is the head of a company that is making a huge amount of money off climate change, but that was actually willing to come to the table um, with me and with Socket Sony and Resilience Force to actually have a conversation, which frankly, in my experience is pretty rare. And a lot of the other companies would not talk and he would. So that was a nice chance to be reminded journalistically of like, you make assumptions about who will and won't talk, who will and won't invest time and care in the process. And he he actually really did surprise me with how much he was invested in having the conversation. Did he just surprise you that he was willing to have the conversation or did he surprise you with what he was willing to say? I think both, not just what he was willing to say, but more importantly, what he was willing to do. I mean, part of what I map in the piece is the trajectory of this intervention that Resilience Force had. I'm really interested in models where we see people, like you said, pushing back because I, I... I do end up writing mostly about depressing things. I think right now, none of us have a shortage of depressing things in our life. Do we really need to immerse ourselves in more pain and more trauma and more systemic injustice? I think what I certainly have an appetite for and what I want to find in the world is like people have so many creative ways of actually pushing back. And it's never simple. It's never facile. It never is an easy trajectory of like, oh, and now the problem is resolved. But to me, the interesting tension in this piece was watching this group of organizers and this group of workers try to make change. They tried litigating and they sued a bunch of the companies that had, uh, that had harmed workers. And honestly, like, yeah, sometimes they won a little bit of money to compensate workers for wage theft, but it wasn't really addressing, I think, the deeper underlying problems. And so it was nice to then get to watch this company, Mark Davis's company, really come to the negotiating table with Sony as a result of his, like, endless, intense advocacy and then watch a real conversation unfold that wasn't just lip service about how they could start to change the industry. How do you stay open to those kinds of developments, open to like stories that seem relatively clear, becoming more complicated, less simple, more nuanced? (laughs) I'm open to it because like every single story I've ever done that felt like it had any value to me ended up feeling like it had gotten totally screwed up at some point in the process because it didn't comport to my sense of what it was going to be or what it should be. And then always that thing that when I pulled the thread of that complexity, it was like always better for it. And it's always, like I can give some really concrete examples. Like I remember I did this story way back when I think we spoke about it, about confidential informants who got killed in the context of the, the war on drugs, people who were made to work for police and do these really dangerous things. And I remember I'd found a protagonist and I'd been told, you know, she she just sold a little bit of pot out of her apartment and then she had been roped into this really dangerous informant scheme. And then when I started looking into it, it's like, oh man, it's actually a lot more complicated. She really genuinely was, you know, selling ecstasy and doing this and doing that. And I had that little fake moment in my head where I was like, oh man, like I thought I had this tidy story and now it's more complicated. And then yeah, of course it's more complicated because every human being, we're all messy and complicated and stories reflect, like when stories can reflect that, they're better. In some ways, I'm almost chafing against this, even working within the medium of like narrative reconstruction and long form. Journalism forces us to reduce reality to a bunch of 
scenes and a narrative arc and a specific trajectory. And it's really tough because I don't think that's not what life looks like to any of us, right? And so it's an interesting balance of figuring out how do we like bust open the seams, like how much complexity a story can contain while also not like completely losing the reader and completely abandoning that which narrative is, which is (laughs) partly about like, what do we exclude? How do we make this something we can digest? Does that have an impact on not just the way that you structure these pieces, but the actual writing choices you make? I mean, one of the things that's striking reading the climate workers piece is it's like climate change, American capitalism, big stuff. And the writing is maybe maybe a way to describe it as like spare. Yeah. I mean, I think you've zeroed in on like where I tend to get tied up. I think when I first started out as a writer, I thought I've got to do like these flowery dances or like I'm thinking about it on like the balance beam, the different like moves that a gymnast is pulling, like whatever the writing equivalent of that, that's where I would get really stuck. And so one great thing about being at the New Yorker, I realized is like, they're cool with like, just say the sets of things that happen and like get out of your own way. Cause that's where I get trapped. And so it's been helpful. And, and it's been helpful to really think about reporting for me, and I don't mean this to sound like super mystical or anything, but for me, it really is a physiological process of like paying attention to where my body or where my curiosity lights up of like, Ooh, that person said that thing and it stuck with me in my gut or it, it, it made me lean in. And I'm paying attention to the physicality of like the reporting process. And then I'm just trying to make sure I capture those parts of what a person said or did. Like, you know, in this piece, it really stood out to me that I was writing about this woman, Bealiz Gonzalez, who was a Venezuelan asylum seeker who came to this country um, relatively recently with her teenage daughter. And she had been an amazing environmental activist back in Venezuela. And then um, she wound up in this uh, low-wage agricultural job. And then her friend told her about a hurricane repair job after, I believe it was after Hurricane Irma. And so she went and followed it. And then she went on to the next storm and then the next storm. And she faced a lot of abuse in the process, but she also was just a really creative person. And so I would always light up in our interviews when she mentioned like different creative things she did. Like she was writing poetry when she was like at the construction sites. And I would just say, like, oh, what could you do? You have a poem? And she got up and she had her phone out. And she did this recitation of this amazing poem, which actually didn't even wind up in the piece, but was my favorite part of the whole reporting process, which was this love poem about how. She imagined this guy who was going to like see her on the construction site in her hard hat and her safety goggles and was going to fall in love with her nonetheless. And um, like those are the moments that make reporting really, I don't know, like interesting and enriching for me. And that's what I'm always trying to capture then if, to the extent that I can on the page. To me, like the joy of the work is in the listening and in the getting to go to new spaces and learn from the people that I'm spending time with. And I feel so lucky to have the time because it feels like it can be about you know, developing a relationship that feels a little bit less extractive. That matters every bit as much as nailing the kind of systemic injustice, like getting the numbers and the data. And and to the extent that those two can meet, I think that's the sweet spot. That's the place I really, really want to be as a journalist, is having done like a deep understanding of the theoretical terrain that we're in, the history and the roots of it, like that is an important part of understanding how we are where we are. And I think all of those parts brought together, the individual story of someone like Bailey's Gonzalez and the story of the industry and who's profiting, I, I think, you know, the intersection is to me what makes it most fulfilling. And the most powerful. I hope so. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I wonder... 
to what degree that's on your radar. I mean, you are like writing about these systemic injustices and I know impact is a loaded word, but I do wonder to what extent do you engage with the potential impact that these stories have? Oh, yeah. Yeah, in in some ways I feel kind of shameless about and very open to owning the fact that I do write because I want to be part of a collective conversation about change. And I think that's one thing that's probably changed since the last time you and I talked quite some time ago. I feel like the profession is changing to make more space for those of us who write because we believe that the world is full of a lot of pain and hurt that's a result of choices being made by by each of us and by systems. And so um, I do feel like it's, I'm happy to say and own the fact that I am drawn to stories that are about, um, in a world of many intractable social problems, how can we start identifying um, the space where actual policy change could help or where organizing seems to be making some headway or where things are getting stuck and the headway is not being made. And I feel like I, I do think pretty consciously about how could a story contribute to our understanding of that. And it's never going to be, I don't think it's ever going to be like, oh, this one story broke something open and the policies are now totally different. But I think it's, you know, we're part of a journalistic ecosystem where hopefully that's happening. Like sometimes local news institutions work really, really hard to crack open their one piece of it. And then like there's larger national stories that keep driving that forward on the federal front. And there's there's ways that all of these things operate in conversation with each other. So I think I've also taken maybe some of the hubristic, like the ego part out that I think my measure used to be like, wait, okay, I spent a year on this to change happen. And it's like, that's such a preposterously like wrong and ego-driven way of thinking about social change. And so, yeah, I'm hopefully evolving in terms of when I get really hopeless about it, just remembering that we're all kind of taking little tiny pieces of it over a period of a very long period of time. How connected do you stay to these stories? Like it's, um, you know, a year and change of your life and then on some level you move on to reporting the next one, but how connected do you stay to them? Yeah, I think part of what makes the work rewarding for me too is the relationships you build. And so um, I really, I've loved getting to know Bailey's Gonzalez, the worker I mentioned who um, is from Venezuela, who continues to follow different storms. She's going from from place to place and reckoning with whether she's going to stay in the industry. And I, I would be so lucky to get to keep following what happens with her. And, and I also think a lot of stories have grown out of those longitudinal relationships. Like I, I alluded at the beginning to how this story really had its roots in the reporting I did in Iraq and Afghanistan, but I didn't mention that. Some of that came directly through the person who's the protagonist of this story, Sakat Sony. So, you know, we had spoken years ago in the Iraq-Afghanistan context because um, he was doing some of the earliest work around the workers who were trafficked after Hurricane Katrina. And I I briefly put this in the piece, but he had actually helped to bring what wound up being one of the largest human trafficking lawsuits in um, U.S. history, uh, where a bunch of Indian workers, I believe it was definitely more than 100, possibly hundreds, who were brought over, um, recruited to do Gulf Coast rebuilding, um, and they were totally lied to about what they were going to be doing. They were held in abysmal conditions, um, some cases like at gunpoint, and ICE was going to be called on the workers who protested. And so Sock had actually helped organize that community. And those were our very first conversations. That was years ago. That was years before this resilience force piece. 
So I guess I'd say to the reporters who are listening who have had pieces where it feels like it didn't work out, because that happens to me all the time. I've had things where I poured my heart and soul into it for whatever reason. Things didn't coalesce. I had really wanted to do a long piece about that Indian trafficking case, and it just didn't happen. And so I kept in touch with Sony, and it was years later I saw, oh my God, he started this new organization specifically for workers rebuilding after climate crises and extreme weather. And then I said, okay, this is the moment I'm going to like make this piece happen. So, you know, that happens to all of us, I think, in different ways. So the answer is very connected. <laughs> I, I hope so. I try. I definitely try. Hey, Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, this was a pleasure. It was really great to catch up and talk. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Jackie Sajiko. Thanks to her. Thanks to John Darton and everyone at the George Polk Awards. Thanks to Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to Sarah Stillman for taking the time to talk to me about that article. If you have not read it, make some time and go do that. We've got a few more of these George Polk interviews this week, so stay tuned tomorrow. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.